Hello, I'm Rich Tang, and you're at the Rich Tang Leicester Square Theatre podcast channel. It's nearly the end of the series. It's been a great series, hasn't it? What fun we have had. If you want to help us fund these, go to gofasterstripe.com slash badges. Buy a badge, one-off, or preferably monthly, you get all kinds of benefits, plus entry into a free monthly draw and access to a free secret channel with extra backstage questions and all sorts of other extras. Uh, otherwise, just sit back and enjoy this for nothing, you cunt. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. Please welcome a man who has secretly has a Christmas cake hidden on the sets. He's Richard Herring. Thank you, and they applauded. Even though I went off, they applauded right till the middle. That's how good this... You're much better than last week's audience. Please welcome Richard Herring. Here I am. Uh, welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. This is Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast, or as some of the cool kids calling it, Rahel Lerstepur. Yeah, they're getting cooler by the week. Uh, so uh, uh, I'm go- I haven't got much to talk about, so I'm going to uh, just, quick, just check. I haven't forgot anything to say uh, in here. Um, oh, no, that's interesting. Uh, that's for, that's a question for uh, Ben Goldacre. That's exciting. Don't stay there. Oh, I, the only thing I thought that I went to, I did a, uh, a quiz thing in uh, Vintners Hall, which is a posh hall where Vintners used to go. <laughs> People who made wine, and it was a, for a charity thing. It was a quiz, but I was a bit distracted. Jeremy Paxson was asking the questions. It was very exciting. I'm not making this up. This really happened. Uh, and uh, but I was distracted from the quiz because there was like a lion and unicorn kind of crest thing on the wall behind, you know, like from the olden days. And the unicorn had quite a big penis. And I'd, I'd what's, for me, that felt wrong, that a mythical beast. Surely they just appear out of nowhere, unicorns. They're not made in that prosaic, disgusting way that they have a penis and a vagina, a unicorn vagina. They, they're made from rainbows or something, can't they? They appear at the end of a rainbow and jump out. And so I became quite focused on this unicorn penis. And I thought, oh, you know, it just, there's no need to carve it on there anyway, even if the unicorns are created in that way there's no need to put that on so I'm a bit upset about unicorn penises this week whether there's any need to show that uh, but let's meet uh, the audience uh, there's a usual rag bag of uh, idiots and then look there's like quite a big gap there's a big gap here like people have bought these seats and decided not to come they've definitely sold and look at all those seats people bought those it's very nice there's all those seats and then just you sir here what's your name Ian <laughs> You're definitely a product of my imagination. There's just no way. You're a slightly terrifying-looking man. That's just that's for the people who can't see you. Uh, and what do you do for a living, Ian? You work at Tesco's. <laughs> it just seems unlikely. What do you do at Tesco's? Stock control. I like Tesco's. In fact, you know what? I've got a secretly. I've bought uh, Ben Goldacre loves uh, Christmas cake. I bought a. I've got it for it's Tesco finest. Is it really any better than the uh, regular Tesco? Are they in the, the when you're back doing the stock to go get the Christmas cakes? All right, put those ones that the same one in that box. Charge ten quid for that. No, no. Tesco's have been in a bit of trouble, haven't they, with the the bosses and stuff? Is that anything to do with you? No, okay. Well, it's nice to meet you, Ian. Thanks for coming along. Did you have lots of friends who you thought were going to come and they didn't turn up, or is it just... No, it's just an accident. <laughs> He's so nice, and I'm being... I already feel... I haven't even said anything really horrible, and I still feel... Usually, I feel really proud of myself for picking on some of the audience, and I actually feel ashamed. That is 
something that very, very rarely happens. Uh, so, and uh, thank you, Ian. Nice to meet you. And if I'm in Tesco's and I shoplift something, will you turn a blind eye or will you? Yeah, you'll turn a blind eye. You probably get sacked for saying that now. So, uh, you know, just if I ever do a maidly, which I do all the time, I just haven't been caught yet. So uh, it's. Uh, I was talking about uh, Simon Maidley, a uh, friend of my, a friend of mine from school, who was a notorious shoplifter. That is, his wife was an alcoholic, and uh, he was, she was quite a lot older than him. So people go, that's an odd couple, those two together. But yeah, true story. So uh, we're going to uh, crack straight on. Usually we have like comedians, comedy people on. This got like a, this we've gone classy. This is a classy one. You're lucky you came to this one, because this I can see you're a kind of classy guy. Uh, and this is, a, you could come in, this is a classy one, because we've got like an, like an author. Uh, he's written a book called, I think, you'll find, think it's, I think You'll Find It's a Bit More Complicated Than That. That's the kind of guy he is. <laughs> I'm, ben, I'm Ben Goldacre. He might as well call it, You Are Not As Clever As I Am. That is, he might as well... I am clever, you are not. He is best known because he loves eating Christmas cake. That is what he's just, he will never stop eating Christmas, or eat Christmas cake. This is true as well, I'm not making this up. This is the only reason I've got him on here. I met him, he was on a show I did called Rich Chain's Objective, and when I went round to his flat, and he offered me, it was like June or something, he offered me Christmas cake. He likes Christmas cake so much, he keeps it in his freezer. That's all. I'm, we're just going to mainly talk about that. So, uh, will you please welcome Christmas Cakes, Ben Goldacre, ladies and gentlemen. Here he is. Welcome. <laughs> did you enjoy my? Did you enjoy my impression of you? I did there. I was very generous. <laughs> my wife. That's what my wife said I just, when I showed her. I was reading a book called "I Think You Think." I think you'll find it's more complicated than that. Well, it's quite cock-like. But yeah. you know, I feel like I should speak out in defence of the cock. Yeah. You know, I, you know cocks play a sort of valuable and positive role in society. Yeah. They do. <laughs> the, is this unicorn penises or just men who are penises? I was thinking more whistleblowers. Okay, but I mean, that's fair sort of being, uh, being, sort of like, uh, being socially transgressive enough to be a clever dick, I think yeah. it's probably okay. Anyway, it let's is, not talk about it. It is, no, but that's, but mainly, that's mainly what you are, so we've got to talk about that. I have got you a present. I don't usually get people presents, but I knew you were coming in. So I've got, and this is Tesco Finest, which uh, Ian will attest is... Uh, Serve 16 people, but I, I think, I think Ben, you're going to eat this on your own. I will slowly, but sure. it's a round one. I know you prefer square ones, so you can keep them in your freezer. You can pack them in more densely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you might have to. I mean, it's not as impressive giving you this because it's like mid-November, and like people are going, well, you know, so what? You're giving him Christmas cake. It's not that impressive, but you know, it, 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 I could be giving him any time. It's got baubles on it, icing, got a little holly on it. That is for you. I want you to take that away. It's got cognac in it. I feel overwhelmed. Is that a good one or not? Because it doesn't even say Christmas cake on it. And it set off the uh, alarms good. in Tesco's, but I did pay for it. I can get you the receipt. <laughs> Look at the thing on... Because I did it, I scanned it myself on the thing, and then it's, and it went off when I left. Uh, so don't go into any Tesco's with that. Okay. But it, even though I was talking about shops, I did pay for that. I would, I would have happily stolen it if I could have done. But it's quite, that's quite hard to slip out, you know, under your jacket. It's a good, good Christmas cake, then. If you feel like any point during the interview... Just, just cracking this bad in. boy open. Yeah. <laughs> well, if anyone's got a knife, you yeah. know, if the interview goes badly. <laughs> <laughs> so it's quite unusual to have an intellectual novelist, uh, well, author, not a novelist, uh, scientist... On I don't do storybooks. No. Well, some would say they, that Gillian McKeith might disagree with you on that one, Ben. 
but I thought it'd be interesting as a change. And also, you did uh, tweet me and say, "Can I please be on the podcast?" This I is love completely it. untrue. Oh, please, can I? Clear. Please, can I be on? I love it. What I said was, you should have more D-list public intellectuals. Yeah. On. But I meant, like, I, I listened to the show, so I wanted you to have on like Danny Dawling or George Monbiot. Or yeah, I don't care about any of those pricks. I know, I know, I know who you are. So that makes it. I, I like to choose people I like, and I'm a big fan. I am a bit. Unlike Andrew Collins, who we discussed, who's not a big fan of yours. You once when we did the Andrew Collins uh, show, uh, the, the sorry, it was Collins and Heron. I'm not building it up a bit there, uh, which you also listened to. You did email me and said, "Would you like me one week to come and hide in the cupboard in your attic and then burst, and then burst out when out he says when something he says, yeah. about vitamin pills?" But we never got round to doing that. That would have been unkind. I think you know. I, I didn't. I, yeah. <laughs> He obviously had very deep-rooted reasons for really yeah. loving Gillian McKeith, and I didn't want to get involved. In <laughs> I actually went to a nutritionist this year, so I'll talk to you about this, so we'll get this out of the way, because you're not a fan of nutritionalists. I think... I think is that fair to say? I think the problem is that they, like, it's really good to be into um, healthy eating and healthy lifestyle yeah. and all of that, but the basics of a healthy lifestyle are really, really obvious, and you know them all already. And so I think the trouble with nutritionists, and I haven't written about this for about 100 million years, but the problem with nutritionists is that they, they deliberately overcomplicate basic dietary advice in order to create a professional space for themselves, and in so doing, disempower people who uh, actually just need to get on and improve their lives in really obvious ways. Yeah. So I think there's something quite sort of sadistic and unpleasant and manipulative about that. It was a little bit weird. I was, it was because I was, did this men's health uh, abs challenge thing, so it wasn't a choice of my own, uh, uh, which was... Fuck, fuck off. <laughs> Some of the abs of... I failed the challenge, I think it's fair to say. Uh, but uh, I had to get abs in six weeks, but I got like, a little bit thinner, but I now put that weight back on. But part of it was they, they gave the, they, well, the gym I went to had a nutritionist, and, but she was like semi, some of it was like good advice, like eat loads of vegetables. She wanted me to eat a kilo of vegetables a day. That'll keep you regular. It, it did. It was hard work and, and oat groats, which are quite unpleasant. <coughs> Uh, but then she also had this other, she said, oh, I put all sorts of things together, Chinese medicine. And, and there was, she did a thing where I had to lie down on a, um, on like a massage table. And then she would grab my hand and do like, do this. And then she would put that and do things like this. And then she'd go, can you feel that? And I would say, yeah, but yeah, I didn't, I I didn't know what she was hands. talking about. Uh, and she was doing something about chakras or something, I imagine. Right. I guess. I don't know. Yeah. She was going, can you feel it? And you go, oh, you know, oh, there's some resistance here. You go, can you feel it? Uh, yeah. I oh, was feel she it. testing that, it, that you were allergic to certain things? Uh, yeah, was I think she, she was trying thing? to do that, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's definitely bollocks. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> the good, but the good thing about all of those kinds of people is that they can at least sometimes kind of, um, you know, they've got good recipe tips or they can, like, they can renormalize <laughs> having a healthy lifestyle. Or also just the fact of paying somebody a shed yeah. load of money and going to a huge amount of effort might kickstart people into healthier living. She was really nice. But this is a really important public health issue, which yeah. is, like, we know that healthy eating and, and getting more exercise is probably good for you overall. Like, it helps you live longer, yeah. less heart disease, less cancer. Um, but the question is, how do you get people to do it? And actually, all of the research shows that telling people to eat more fruit and veg and telling people to get more exercise probably doesn't really work and if it does work it doesn't work for very long and the mm. trouble with all that lifestyle stuff is you have to do it for your whole life so actually annoyingly 
the answer to all of that stuff isn't some sort of um, individualistic, like I'm going to empower myself to improve my own health stuff. It's probably really boring stuff like getting chocolate vending machines out of schools and train stations and replacing them with easy access to fruit and veg and changing road transport arrangements and city design to make it easy for people to cycle and take public transport and all of that really really boring stuff that individual people can't make money out of and that are predominantly managed by taxation and uh, legislation in ways that most governments for the last four decades have found just completely impossible to get their heads around but that is the way that you change yeah. people's behavior i mean it did feel i mean i didn't mind i was writing a play about rasputin at the time and it felt quite good research for that because it was like i was going i was basically going to a gym that i would never afford to go to and, and getting these nutritionalist advice that i would never pay for <laughs> but that i imagine rich people well i saw this the, the thing she recommended she said what you have to get is because i never put salt on anything anyway i don't really i don't like salt very much uh, I like sh sugar and chocolate. Uh, and uh, I put that on stuff and marshmallows, they're good. Uh, well, but, uh, There's a restaurant just by here where, um, where we once went in really drunk at about one in the morning and we said, oh, we'd just been talking about how much we loved MSG. And we said, oh, wait, but before we order, do you, put, do you put MSG in your food? And they went, oh, no, sir, we never put any MSG. And we all got up and went, oh, well, we better go then. They went, no, it's all right, we put MSG in our food. <laughs> and they brought out a whole tub of it to put on the table, and it's just wow. this sort of volume knob of right. flavour. Well, she, gave, she said I had to, couldn't just use regular salt, I had to get Himalayan salt. Have you seen this Himalayan salt that's right. pink? Yeah, yeah, the, uh, the Science Museum, yeah. that, that haven of Enlightenment values, sell... Himalayan rock salt ion-releasing lamps right. that <laughs> cleanse your environment. So yeah. it's a very similar thing. Yeah. You don't, you don't think it works? No, I don't. It's pink, though, so... I mean, because salt is white, and then it's pink, so it's... This is, like, better. Yeah. Well, it's got to be magic. And also, I noticed that Russell Brand has that, so... Uh, feels like something that people go, yeah, you can't just have a regular salt that costs nothing. You have to have salt brought from the Himalayas that is pink. Is it pink in nature? It just seems unlikely. Uh, so, um, are you... <laughs> yeah, well, let's get some personal stuff out of the way. Your mum is a pop star. You're the second uh, guest I've had in quite recently whose parent is in... was a pop star. Who else's mum? Uh, Sarah Pascoe's uh, dad was in Flintlock. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, she was. Yes. What was she in? She, uh, she was called Nusha Fox, and she did a song called S -S -S Single Beds that right. was number three in England and okay. stuff, and number one in, well, number one all over Europe, and number one for a long time in Germany, right. which is testament to sort of cheesy disco <laughs> funkness <laughs> of it. Uh, but yeah, she was really. Are you great. still living off the royalties from that one, or is? <laughs> no, is it dried in up a fact, bit? I remember when I was a kid, my mum was chatting about this the other day that. This, the tax man constantly coming to our house because we lived in Oxford. Yeah. And if it had been in London, then the tax man would have known that people like my mum had sinister Svengali figures who took all the money. Um, but he just couldn't believe that she didn't make any money because <laughs> he'd seen her on telly. <laughs> so they were constantly like, they'd basically live in our house for a week a yeah. year to go through all of these. I reckon you just saw her on the telly thing. and thought, I want to try and get off with her. I'm going <laughs> <Yeah. I'm gonna laughs> to try and come up with spurious reasons to hang around <laughs> and hope. Because, you know, the people on telly generally were in the 1970s would pretty much have sex with anyone. Up <laughs> so, the age of 60. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you call yourself an ap an I don't know how to even say it, apatheist. Yeah, once, fleetingly, okay. in an interview about nine years now ago. Now it's on Wikipedia, so it's, it's Is that stuck. right? Yeah. Bloody hell. Uh, yeah, so that you're an, an apathetic atheist. 
It means I just, nothing bores me more than thinking about God. <laughs> like, I don't believe in God, clearly, yeah. but also I don't want to, I don't want to get involved in sixth form discussion, and I don't, like, I'm not, there's quite, you know, there's a sort of nerd community that, I, that it's easy to get accidentally associated with that involves um, some sort of grumpy old men who want to blame all Muslims for ISIS and that sort of thing. And it's just Is not it my mainly Richard thing. Dawkins you're talking about? I wasn't entirely thinking of <laughs> the dork bot. Um, but, uh, there are some people who just wish had never found Twitter. Seriously, Richard Dawkins is the person I wish had never... Then I could have respected him just totally. I, like, I still respect some things he does. He's an awful person to follow on, on Twitter. Really, and also, he just retweets every bit of praise. I tried to go through a phase with Richard Dawkins where I would retweet him retweeting his own praise. <laughs> but I don't know whether people got what I was doing. But it's, you sort of think with Richard Dawkins, some, then some of you think, oh, you're a bit insecure, or yeah, you might need the sales. But that's going to people who already like you. You don't need to convince them. Yeah. Your retweets only go to people who like you already. I don't know. I think you can feel a bit sort of... You can feel a bit desperately lonely and weird as a writer rather than a performer because you don't get the... Um, like, you come here and there are, there are people who love you, Richard. Yeah. But Ian. if you're... Um, <laughs> but if you write books, then it's sort of different. You're a bit alone in a room, so yeah. maybe, maybe he just needs a little top-up yeah. every now and then. A reminder that... I've heard he does all right uh, <laughs> with, with his fans. So... Um, reading something into that that was there so uh, you um... <laughs> this is quite a perilous sort of format isn't it because yeah. there's a lot of like you suddenly, when you say something like that if I flick through the mental rolodex of all of the terrible terrible stories I know yeah. not particularly about the dork bot but about all kinds of people <laughs> yeah. and it would like it's because I can hardly see these people, and in a normal conversation, I'd be moving on to a series of anecdotes now, <laughs> which are clearly not to be safely recorded onto magnetic tape. Yeah, but that's, you're still being cautious, but in a half an hour, you'll have been broken down. It's uh, Stockhausen, Stockhausen syndrome, I like to call it. Just to, I've got a joke about that. That's the reason I like to call that. It never works, because uh, not enough people know who Stockhausen is. So, um... <laughs> or Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, so uh, uh, let's uh, talk a little bit. Well, let's talk about Gillian McKeith. What did you have against her? Say, she said that uh, spinach high in chlorophyll, so it was high in chlorophyll, so it could oxygenate blood. That seems to make sense. That is logic. That is pure. <laughs> that is pure cold logic. It's uh, common sense. Yeah. So uh, chlorophyll in chloroplasts only makes oxygen in uh, light. Yeah. And it's quite dark in your bowels. So. Yeah. Um, and even if you stuck a searchlight up your bum as part of a sort of uh, <laughs> one of those terrible sort of welcome-funded public engagement and science <laughs> projects where you mix theatre and art and science, it still wouldn't make any oxygen because there's no carbon dioxide in your bowels. And even yeah. if it did make oxygen, that probably wouldn't be a very good idea because there's a lot of methane in your bum. And <laughs> then you'd be quite likely to explode. And that's <laughs> why when surgeons inflate your bowels to do keyhole surgery, they use inert gases because they're not fuckwits. <laughs> so that's that's one example of something, Julian. You can McKeith you says can that prove anything with sense. facts. That is what <laughs> that's what I think. It's that, but it's good if people eat more spinach, though, right? 
Uh, yeah, so then you get into like the noble myth, you know, yeah. is it all right to lie to people in order to get them to do the right thing? And um, I think that kind of depends on context and also it depends a little bit on consent. So I'm yeah. a doctor um, and I still see patients and, and I, I'm always aware that I could lie to them, like I, like I could overstate the benefits of treatments yeah. and it probably would enhance the benefit that they immediately get from that intervention but it would come at a series of costs, like, for example, you know, the gradual extinction of trust in the medical profession once people start to know that doctors actually bullshit you quite a lot. Um, and also, I just don't think I could do it with a straight face is the <laughs> other problem. But there um, must be easier ways for her to pretend to make a living than kind of looking at people's poo and stuff, though. That was... Well, apparently not. No. I mean, I, you know, she, has, she hasn't come up with a second option <laughs> since she was rebranded as a pantomime figure of fun. Is she still going now, though? You've, you've kind of dented her credibility a little bit. She stopped calling herself doctor. She did. As a direct result of you. Is that, would that, would that fair to say? Yeah, maybe. I mean, she had a doctorate from a non-accredited correspondence course college and sort of professional certificates that I... Well, one that I bought for my cat for $60. My dead cat <laughs> for $60. Um... I don't know where she is now. I get, um, every now and then, members of her family send extraordinary emails about me to people in the media, which I just, oh, I sort of, I've got this huge reservoir of smears, which I've just been collecting, <laughs> which one day I'm just going to put all in one place. It's this, because there's something quite pleasing about the edifice, sort of all of it side by side, especially the, um, especially the, the ones from Quacks who say that I'm um, in the pay of Big Pharma to rubbish Quacks alongside all of the ones from Big Pharma about how what a terrible person I am as well. <laughs> There's just sort of, they make quite a pleasing tableau. Um, but if you ever get murdered, it's going to be really hard to work out who did it. That is, because you've kind of pissed yeah. off everyone. I've been followed on my bike, actually, about eight or nine years ago after one story, which was probably like, so yeah, I mean, it's not, um, it's not impossible. And I've had, yeah. I've had, um, I've had people sort of, uh, Show up at the house and things like that. Do you like want to say now angry. who you think has murdered you in case you get murdered? Then we can show no. this on the news and stuff. It'd be good publicity for the podcast as well. Well, actually, but I mean, the funny thing about it is you don't... I think... Um, I mean, I regret even mentioning it because you kind of... You don't want to put the idea in people's okay. heads, you know. But also, um, yeah. Might not want to eat that Christmas cake. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> actually, the one thing I would say, though, is I would never... Like, there are no circumstances in which I would kill myself. So if no. it ever appears that I have done so, it's definitely a very, very elaborate murder plot. <laughs> OK. Well, fingers crossed. So, uh, I mean, just because it'd be good for the podcast. No, I mean, it'd be sad for his kids and stuff. So, um... But you, I mean, you have, uh, I mean, big pharma, because uh, Andrew Collins used to be annoyed a bit about you picking on uh, homeopathy and uh, nutritionalists, but I did say... In the exactly first, the same book yeah. that I pick on big pharma. Exactly, and I said yeah. I've read this book, when I read it on holiday, uh, uh, Bad Science, the first of your books, I think, uh, and I read it on holiday, and I said, you've really got to read this, it really lays into big pharma, and then your second book is all about uh, big pharma. So, so this is about um, drugs company basically fudging statistics and, and using, the, using the, the stuff that makes them look good in order to make money. Yeah, so it's basically <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it's about uh, drug companies doing badly designed drug trials, which are rigged by design in such a way that they're more likely to give a favourable result to their treatment. Um, it's about drug companies, but also uh, even non-industry-sponsored academics um, failing to report the results of clinical trials. So the best yeah. currently available evidence, if you follow up all of the studies, which uh, take a bunch of trials which we know have started and finished to see if their results are ever reported, best currently available evidence shows that about half of all those trials go missing in action. Um, and after the book came out, it was actually, it was quite a sort of weird example of, um, of sort of reputation judo. So the, the book came out and there's this, there's this quite, quite a sort of nasty man really called Stephen Whitehead, who's the head of the Association of British Pharmaceutical Industries, who um, sent all these quite sort of nasty smeary comments about me over emails that, you know, saying he's a fringe maverick, not taken seriously by anyone in the medical or academic or regulatory or policy community. And he's, I'm not going to debate him. He's an idiot. Um, and Obviously, the first thing that happened after he sent that was it was forwarded to me with the subject heading LOL by my <laughs> mates. So that was almost quite insulting because it, it sort of feels to me that if, you, if it's your job to smear me, then if the first thing that happens after you do that is that it gets forwarded to me, then you're just not very good at your job. <laughs> um, but also that led to um, quite a lot of sort of fairly senior people in medicine were basically just said, well, actually, this is a real problem and we do need to fix it, the problem of trial results going missing in action. So I did a letter to the Times and got as many people as I could to sign it, which is sort of classic pompous first move in any public <laughs> campaign, and got, um, uh, you know, royal college presidents and editors of the Lancet and the BMJ and that sort of thing to sign it, which is very kind of them. And then um, we sort of realised that this was, thing was going to die unless we got going. So we set up this thing called the All Trials Campaign which is at alltrials.net, with uh, five grand off Simon Singh, who sold more books than me, so he's a philanthropist. <laughs> um, and, uh, and we started this campaign, and just overnight, it went, um, it went kind of uh, just viral and global, and 80 patient groups signed up in one day. They'd right. had this sort of funny secret meeting where they just went, okay, enough is enough. Um, and now... The Medical Research Council, NICE, uh, drug companies like GSK and little teeny ones as well. Uh, just tons and tons and tons of like all the biggest players in medicine basically have all signed up to say it's a massive problem that drug trial results are withheld and we need to do something about it and fix it. And we've had two select committees and changes in the law in Europe and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so is it solved now? No. <laughs> and it probably never will. Like, and that's the, so it's the thing, that, all of that sort of stuff, it's just, um, it's exhausting and unending. And yeah. that's actually, that's the kind of, um, that's the real trial with that sort of stuff, I think, actually, is to make it sustainable. Um, yeah. And to do that, you have to federate. So that's why we set up the campaign. So it'll sort of carry on after I'm assassinated. <laughs> or, you know, after I apparently commit suicide. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure it'll ever be sort of properly fixed. I think we've got got to the point now where people can't pretend that the problem doesn't exist anymore. No, so that's. But it's that kind of. I mean, because it's science. Because medicine is science. So you do. You know, I, I, th that was interesting to me because I would tend to trust medicine because you think, oh, they're doing something good. They're trying to save lives, uh, but though obviously they're trying to make money. It sort of seems odd that that's a monetized thing at all in a way really if, if something was going to be nationalized it should be medicine really uh, or you know for the world in fact because like obviously the, a lot of these medicines don't go to africa where they're needed because they're not going to make any money from that i suppose yeah so i think i think that's a peculiarly english 
perspective on healthcare, actually, because of the sort of glorious socialist utopia of the NHS, we're really unaccustomed to the idea that you pay for healthcare and, and that people will make money out of it and that your access to healthcare might actually be dependent on how much cash you've got in your pocket. That's, that seems like a completely insane notion to most people in England. Yeah. So when, when you're suddenly hit with it, with a really expensive cancer drug or something, people are just sort of consumed with righteous indignation. They can't, they can't quite believe it because we've been so shielded from that reality for such a long time. But it is a reality. Yeah. Uh, although actually, I think, uh, you know, industry shoots itself in the cock quite unnecessarily because um, I don't think overall they profit from, from withholding the results of clinical trials because, you know, it's, uh, it's only in their interests in a regulatory environment in which it is permissible to do that. And actually, if everybody had to disclose all their trial results, there would be no commercial incentive to withholding the results of clinical trials. Yeah. And they wouldn't suffer the massive reputational sting of being just persistently revealed to be terrible, awful people. <laughs> um, and it's really, it's, it's kind of strange just over the last, I suppose, three or four years of doing all trials and doing bits of government work, sort of being up close to people in decision-making roles in those sorts of big organisations and institutions, where you really start to see how utterly fragile changes and how completely dependent it is a lot of the time on quite imperceptible things. Like, you, you think that the world should be driven by logic, but a lot of it is whim. And a lot of the stuff with pharma is basically just does some, do enough senior people in the organisation understand that what they're doing is completely fucking stupid and self-destructive and untenable and that the worm has turned and that it's you're not going to go back to the 80s where it was okay to do that yeah um and some of them just have a mentality where their whole sense of what they should do is predicated on the most they can get away with and a very short-term perspective on that and some of them kind of seem to recognize and i don't want to sort of give any plaudits to any individual company but some of them seem to get that um it's no longer really tenable to carry on going that way. Um, yeah. But it is kind of odd, the, the extent to which... But then all these, because I mean, that, what the whole, you know, the, 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 the quarter I've read of your book uh, is... Uh, <laughs> it's an easy... Uh, is, it's a very much a toilet book, this, uh, this book, because it's, it's very uh, short uh, chapters, so it's very, it is very readable, but it's, um, but it's you know, that most of these things, if there was just... I mean, it sort of is you, but if there was just a a committee set up that just said, you know, the, to prove stuff, you have to use statistics and evidence correctly. I sort of feel that on Twitter all the time when someone will quote a statistic. Citation you, needed. Yeah, you kind of go, where's this come from? And what, and what's, and that yeah. you're the guy who's prepared to go, well, where's this come from? And, and how would these trials carry so think, out? And but there's a lot more, there's a lot, lot, lot more people doing that now, like Full Fact and lots of other organisations. And, but, and I think, all of that sort of fact-checking stuff, it's interesting because it's a combination of um, skills, of knowing how to do it, yeah. and then time and effort. And it takes a really long time sometimes to, to drill down into, into finding the, the evidence that somebody's either citing or misrepresenting. Um, and, and that takes a lot of time, and it's quite arduous, so it's yeah. quite hard to know how to fund it. There's a, there's a really good service, though, for health stuff, which I had a sort of small hand in setting up, called the Behind the Headlines Service at... Uh, at the NHS Choices website, where they take um, the two biggest health stories in the newspapers that day, and then they send them off to this private 
epidemiology consultancy firm called Bayesian. They were going to send them to an Australian epidemiology consultancy firm so that they could do it overnight and then have the answers by the next morning. <laughs> that was too fiddly. But um, they basically do a kind of a fact check on the two big health stories in the news that day and a really straight description of the evidence behind them, yeah. which is, I think, really good. But uh, what, what should happen more, I think, is that there should be structures and frameworks in place in society that where it matters whether something's right or wrong, yeah. that this sort of thing is handled sort of professionally by people whose job it is. Um, and that's the thing that I think is a real, feels really difficult when, when you see things like, um, like in the book, the, the Department for Communities and Local Government putting out a press release saying that if local government got better at procuring uh, uh, outsourced um, uh, services, they could save 20% off the entire local government procurement budget, 10 billion a year, on the basis of a study that is just total, total fucking bollocks from start <laughs> to finish. Like, literally, yeah. I didn't mean, should I, I mean, should I explain what I'm on about? Yeah. So, so <laughs> that would help. Um, so, this is, this is like Eric Pickles, an official UK government department press release goes out and it says, we could save 10 billion off local government for, for procuring outside services and products. And um, this is 10 billion a year. It's the equivalent of like 500 quid a year off everybody's, off every household's council tax bill. And they had a link to the report that they said had, had proved that this was possible. And it was by a private consultancy firm called Opera Solutions. And when you go to the Opera Solutions website, it didn't link directly, it just linked to that company. I found the report and it's six pages long, and on the front it's got this sort of big series of cubes all moving in and out of each other <laughs> with lots of whooshy lines around it, like that movie Cube. Um, <laughs> and this is, it turns out, in the introductory paragraph, this is their procurement optimization cube technology, <laughs> which they've used to model how the government can save money. And when you dig into it, what they've done is, they've gone to local government and they've gone, all right, can we have a look at your phone bills? your lecky bill, and uh, how much you've spent on outsourcing advice from solicitors. And then they go through those three categories, and they reckon they could have got the legal stuff about 10% cheaper. And they reckon they could have got your lecky about, about your electricity about 10% cheaper. And for the phone bills, they reckon that they could have got that for you 20% cheaper looking at your calls, right? So phone bills, which are famously a deliberately distorted market in which the whole point of the market is that it's too fiddly to get yourself on the right tariff. <laughs> so you probably won't bother because the cost of your time spent trying to find out which is the best tariff for you is so great that you might as well just pay 24 quid a month instead of 18 quid a month, right? And there are all these wide boys in Carphone Warehouse or wherever offering you better deals, but you never know if they're trying to pull a fast one on you and get some kind of weird commission. Like that broken market, they say on the basis that they reckoned they could save a few local government officials 20% off their mobile phone bill, they then apply that to the entire local government <laughs> procurement budget of 50 billion pounds, right? They say they're going to save 10 billion off that. And a quarter of that, a quarter of that is residential care for the elderly and the disabled. So good fucking luck shaving 20% off that in the same way that you think you're going to off mobile phone bills. And that became an official UK government press release from Eric Pickles, the minister, 
from the Department for Communities and Local Government. And I think a world in which that can happen, or a country in which that can happen, is fundamentally broken. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it is. So, uh, but a lot of these things, I mean, they, well, I suppose a lot of them are for the immediate... Um, uh, the media, you know, the media newspaper headlines. So a lot of people, and a lot of these reports seem to be created by, a, you know, like a lot of the surveys are created by a company in order to promote themselves. And the newspapers now can't sell newspapers, so they're almost turning into little advert machines. So there's, you know, that the, the, they'll, they'll run a, a great headline. It just, you know, it sort of, it just seems insane that there isn't someone to run that by before it gets published. The, 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 so I guess, the, the, but the question is, how do you, like, how, how do you fund that and and who like who who you benefits do from do doing it. that? You do it, and we'll give you a Christmas cake a day. <laughs> Have as is, much Christmas you know, cake as you can eat. There's um, I think there is you know, it's an interesting example, I guess, of how um, like I think probably if if you put maybe one percent of the science budget or something up for public vote then actually although people would often vote for quite stupid things like homeopathy or ghosts or um, <laughs> vaccines I think you'd probably actually get if, if the public's interests were, were accurately reflected around science you probably would have a publicly funded fact checking um, ombudsman on, um, on the newspapers and on um, claims made by government I mean there's, there's a stats ombudsman for government but um, you know it, it's a kind of small minor pointy-headed operation that's not really very yeah well people don't know enough about maths and i studied maths and i don't you know i can't remember anything about it now but, but, actually, so, but i don't think it's just that actually because often people who know a lot about maths as soon as they're presented with something that they quite like suddenly they just sort of take the take the brakes off so there's um there's a story in there about a ridiculous right-wing think tank report about the value of maths that gets its own basic arithmetic completely wrong <laughs> and also assumes that if there were more maths graduates in the UK, then there would immediately be more high-paying jobs for maths graduates, which completely misunderstands how the <laughs> labour market was, works because there are a lot of people who are very good at mining in the north and that has not manifested mining jobs, right? <laughs> but... Um, that report that gets its own maths wrong, that also gets its whole explanatory framework for how the labour market works wrong, had this glowing report written about it by Marcus de Sotoy, the professor of the public understanding of science and a mathematician prof, a yeah. mathematics prof at Oxford University. So I think actually even sort of basic clothfulness and skills aren't enough to, um, to, to put the checks on bullshit. Yeah. Well, because but people obviously want to use. I mean, in politics, people want to use as want to use statistics for themselves. So they'll take the same statistics. It just sort of feels like something like, for example, like immigration, whether that is good for the country or bad for the country, depending. It would just be good if there was someone who could just go who rose above any part of political concerns and then went actually here are the actual facts. This is bringing five billion pounds to the country and will do so forever or it won't. You know that mm. you could actually. You can have facts on those things, but you can interpret statistics in any way you want, really, if you're prepared to not so I think, care about it. I think the right place to try and get better evidence in government is on questions that politicians don't care about, so things that aren't big-ticket, sort of high-glamour issues. And actually, it's quite easy to forget that, although there are kind of two streams of, of political activity, so the stuff that we see in newspapers in the media is the kind of soap opera stuff, the Dawson's Creek stuff of who loves who and who's angry at who. And then, and, and, and mixed in with all of that is the kind of, the very emotive policy stuff like immigration or spanking the poor or drug policy and all of that. But actually, 
the vast majority of what government does is really boring implementation, right? Mm -hmm. It's just getting things done and managing stuff. And um, so about a year and a bit ago, I did a, a co-authored a, a cabinet office white paper called Test, Learn, Adapt on how we can do more randomized control trials, which are the gold standard method for testing which intervention works best in medicine, how we can get more of those done in education, in policing, on back-to-work schemes, throughout the whole of government. And it's kind of a Janet and John, like a ladybird book of randomized control trials and, and policy evaluation. But the Behavioral Insights Unit, which is the corner of government that has done the most of these trials in recent years, have run a very deliberate guerrilla campaign of doing these kinds of trials, but on really boring questions that no <laughs> minister could possibly care about the answer on. So it's things like, um, do you get more people sending their tax returns in on time, which allows you to spread the load of working on tax returns over the year, and so it's cheaper, if you send a particular number of letters to remind people or what time of the year do you send those letters or what do you write in those letters so all of the follow-up data is for free because government knows when your tax form arrives yeah. and the intervention is nothing because it's just a letter that they're going to send anyway they just change when they send it and what they write in it so you can run a randomized trial entirely for free you can then demonstrate that that produces a positive benefit for the government and massive cost savings and what you're doing by doing that is is normalizing the idea that it's okay to come up with a policy innovation and then implement it in a way that naturally produces good quality, robust evidence on whether it actually achieves its pre-specified stated objective and then get the results and then act on it. And that's actually quite a subversive system to plant in the DNA of government, right? Because it's only a little while, I hope, I kind of fantasise until you then start to go, okay, so you want to mandate this particular way of teaching reading or you want to roll out this new back-to-work scheme where you're going to persecute people in a way that you think is going to motivate them to get them back to work or you're going to give them lots of extra skills training that's really expensive but you think it's going to work. And actually, why are you just doing a shitty pilot of that which we know is designed to over-exaggerate the benefits why aren't you doing a randomised trial on that like we do for all this other stuff? Like, that's just normal now. We just do, we do randomised trials and it takes maybe two years to find out the answer and then when we find it out, we do whatever works best. And if, if your idea doesn't work, you've moved on to the foreign office or you're out of power, it's okay. <laughs> you know, we might not, like, persecute you over it. In fact, if anything, there should be glory in saying, I've had an idea... I'm going to implement it. I'm pretty sure it's going to work, and I feel ideologically comfortable with its with its kind of overall overarching framework. And and if it works, then that's great. And if it doesn't work, then so be it. And I and I and I sort of think the public might respond quite positively to that. I mean, I'm probably you know maybe I'm fantasizing. In fact, if anything, if the public didn't respond positively to that, then then we would be part of the problem. Sure. So it's. Um but, you know, it's, I mean, I think, like, it, people want to make... I mean, certainly newspapers, whatever, want to make things more exciting than they are. So, like, there's an example in the book of, of maths uh, on a very basic level where you talk about um, a woman has three babies all born on the same day. And I think the Daily Mail, I may be wrong, says that the chances of that are 50 million to one because that's 365 times 365 times 365. But that is not, that's mathematically incorrect for starting because it's... You, you're, it's a, 
it's only 365 times 365 because the baby's already the first baby's already born on a day mm. so that that's that's not part of the maths but also i reckon if i wanted to try and do that i could probably have a crack at doing <laughs> that i reckon it's about 10 to 1 and then a really maybe 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 90 to 1 right if you, you if you go i'm going to deliberately try if and have three babies shagging, yeah and the curry. Yeah. <laughs> I reckon you can get it, you know, you can get it within a week. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so it's, so, so it's, it's, you know, so you, you make maths. And, and people, again, it's the common sense thing. You sort of feel, there's that famous thing that I think you do mention in the book of, uh, you think if there's, a, if there's 22 people, there's a 50-50 chance of two of them having the same, the same birthday. birthday, which sort of seems insane, but it's because of all, it's the way statistic works and you're not, you're not specifying a day. If I said there's three of you are going to be born on the... 30th of June, then that's a different thing. But with 22 people, uh, two of them are likely to have the same birthday. Yeah, and I think, so what I, what I hope that, um, so that book's kind of a collection of columns and of sort of academic papers and government reports and that sort of thing. But what I hope is that, um, that it's not just like snarky, like, the sun got it, got their number It's mainly wrong. that. It is, there's, there's an element of that. <laughs> but, um, I like that though. But that's kind of a, a, maybe like a, a gimmick for then talking about more interesting kind of methodological and mathematical yeah. quirks. And so that's a very simple one. And then but, you know, but further on, there are much people more complicated are thick, that thick when it comes to just basic statistics. Then there is when no you start hope. talking about 5%, you know, plus or minus things, all those that even I can't remember, even though I've got A-levels in, in statistics, then that becomes a lot more... That's way out of, their, out of their league, you know, in terms of understanding that. You say that's way out of their league. I mean, if you go to morning conference at any newspaper, they'll be having a conversation about the ins and outs, the Dawson's Creek stuff of politics and also the really sort of tough ideological stuff. Uh, everybody in the room will have an enormous amount of background knowledge, like encyclopedic, real sort of top Trump stuff yeah. on every politician, on every policy idea. Huge historical backdrop. So for politics, we can do all that. For sport, right... It's inconceivable. Like the, I read, I look at the sports pages, and it's completely impenetrable. And actually, you know, in the world of pop science, there's this, there's this terrible, terrible world of kind of centrally committee-funded public engagement with science projects that are always really, really awful and make people like Robin Ince very, very angry. <laughs> Not that that's like a massive personal challenge. Um, and it's always like, you know, we put a ballet dancer in a brain scanner and made her watch another ballet dancer, and then we did a show where all the children are wearing tutus with letters of the periodic table on them and that's science and it's cool um, and there's this sort of desperation to try and popularise science where they lose the actual scientific content right, science to my mind is about the squabble, it's about the fight, it's about checking the evidence for somebody's claims but they do all of that for, for science and I'm sort of surprised that science is singled out for that kind of treatment because I look at sports and politics and I think like it took, it had like it took Wikipedia being invented for me to understand what on earth was going on during the the parade season in Northern Ireland. <laughs> I had literally no idea. And if I add up all of the news reports that I must have seen on that, in terms of like you know that the sort of minute count, it would be days and days and days of my life of listening to that. So I guess what I'm saying is, science is particularly singled out for shoddy treatment by by a mainstream media that is perfectly capable of fact checking and handling detail. It's just it's just science that, that gets shat on. 
Okay, let's have a look at your YouGov page of your fan. You can tell me whether this... So I don't know if you were here when we were discussing this. Uh, that YouGov now has uh, profiles of fan. You can type in a person uh, who's uh, in the public eye and find out what their fans uh, like. So you're in here. Your demographics of, uh, from a sample size of 546 of your fans. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how scientific this is. Uh, they're... Only just left wing. They're only just look there. They're only just to the side of left wing. They're nearly Good. in the centre. I aspire to be uh, a polit well, not party. Political. You have the same uh, fan base fan of me, which is a man with kind of Stuart Lee hair and uh, <laughs> and a bag over his shoulder, which is male, twenty five to thirty nine, ABC one. Uh, they come mainly from London. Uh, they have five hundred to nine nine five hundred to nine hundred ninety nine pounds monthly right? spare. I was hoping for over a thousand. That's yeah, no, apparently someone has got over a thousand, but I haven't yet found them. Uh, no, I looked at Caitlin Moran. Her fans have got over a thousand. That's yeah, a lot, yeah. isn't it? It's a lot. And of, uh, all politicians' their fans have got. over Should we a see thousand. if your fans like uh, Stuart Lee's? Uh, oh no, they don't. It's not even in there. Your fans hate Stuart Lee. They like uh, they like the Daily Show. That's how sophisticated your fans are. They watch a show from another country. Illegally they downloaded. They like Charlie Brooker and the thick of it in space. So it's quite quite good, but not Stuart Lee. So I like your. <laughs> your I'm not sure. Fa is, I don't think fan is quite the right word for people who like my nerdy I think stuff. it is. So is this? How does this work? Because like my fans apparently like eating hummus. Mm -hmm. How do you think they've arrived at that <laughs> fact? This is, but this is an amazing data resource. So yeah. they're, um, they've they've done obviously like a massive survey on people with a lot of questions. Yeah. If they know about hummus and, I have actually seen my it's vegetable tarly for mine, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> but it's completely preoccupied. I wanted to turn it into a game where you could be like. Who's more right-wing, the fans of Norman Tebbit or that, Theresa May? That's true, yeah. Well, that, is, that would be a good uh, sort of pointless game show uh, aspect. You, your fans like cats. What are their most? My fans would like to have a bird. That's that that odd, yeah. Most likely pet is that's a bird. Very, you've got quite quirky fans, well, though, apparently, you? yeah. Uh, women's issues is a niche interest of your fans. <laughs> <laughs> Not even a niche interest of my fans. <laughs> Not interested in that at all. They're just, they're just trying to understand the women. They like science, though. You're the general interest of science. Good. I could have probably told them that. They didn't need to, need to do that. So is this, a, is this how have they come at this? Do you know how this, you know a bit about it? How have they arrived well, at I this? I don't know, but I mean, I imagine they've just done, a they've just done a one huge, very, very time-consuming survey right. in which I would imagine the main selection bias problem is that it was people who could be bothered to sit down yeah. and answer questions about approximately 10,000 different items. Do you think they gave them a choice of food? Because, you know, like, you're, actually, yours are, yours are amazing, the choices. So, number one, vegetarian tarly. Number two, gravelax. Which is I like don't even posh, know. What, what is gravelax? posh salmon, in it? Sort of is it salmon, posh salmon? Yeah. Pork gyoza in third. <laughs> I mean, like, if you were asked what's your favourite food, with... Well, I, you know, I quite like pork gyoza. I don't know if I would put that top. Burek. Oh, no, I know what start is. Your fans just make up... I don't even say that. That's vichois soup. Vichy swazzy. Is that, is that fish or is that onion? Is it, is it fish-based? Fish-based, isn't it? Sag paneer. Matia paneer. All the Cullen skink. <laughs> That's just made up. Some of these are just made up. So, yeah, because well, I was reading the book about data, using um, the data of uh, 
of everyone's medical records, which are sort of behind as an idea, mm-hmm. so that there's this massive resource because of the NHS of sort of 60 million people's uh, records that you can use to find out all sorts of things. But uh, and they they're in, they make it anonymous, but you fear that they people can backtrack and work out who you are, for example. Yeah. So this is a weird one because I'm on I sort of on in the middle ground, but therefore on the different side of two very rabid arguments. So um, I'm a really big fan of of better use of electronic health record data because it's one of the best strategies we've got for finding out not just what works best um, and what's harmful, but also spotting signals of arbitrary variation in care. So this is a really long-standing problem in medicine. Um, almost everything I start talking about, I realise there's like sort of five minutes of preamble before the payoff. <laughs> but so basically, you, c- you, you can produce atlases of variation in care. So we did one um, called prescribinganalytics.com, looking at statin prescribing, where we looked at uh, which GP practices were the most expensive prescribers of unnecessarily expensive branded statins when the cheap uh, off-patent statins are just as good. And um, you see that there's a huge range of variation. And if everybody prescribed at the cheapest rate, then we'd save huge, huge quantities of money. Yeah. And um, all of this data is a really good way of, of spotting all those kinds of signals. Um, but the government's care dot data thing was done incredibly recklessly. And they were just uh, they were sharing it with people who clearly um, were cl- demonstrably incapable of protecting the data. So, um, for example... So you can re-identify people if you know a little bit about them, basically. So yeah. for me, um, I, if you've got access to my whole electronic health record, then you go, all right, I, I moved from Oxford to London in my early 20s. I had twins last year, which lots of people know about me. And um, you, uh, with that information alone, you probably cut it down to not very many more people. So one more, yeah. one more thing about me, and you'd probably be able to find just just me. And once you've found me with the small number of things that you do know about me, then you can once you've identified my record, you know everything about me. So all of the sort of terrible, you know, sort of masturbation, erosion of penis, <laughs> or you know, things that people might feel embarrassed by. Yeah, Christmas cake in your arteries, <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they were, so the NHS Information Centre were handing over HES, which is this incredibly rich data set, to all kinds of odd people, including the Institute of Actuaries, who are this sort of life insurance people. And you, you, you can have mixed views on whether you think it's okay for life insurance companies to have access to this kind of data to try and optimise their insurance premiums, or whether people should be allowed to kind of live in the gaps they theoretically weren't supposed to be using it for identifying you and finding out secret information about you because actually that wouldn't be very useful because when you get life insurance you have to disclose to them anyway Um, but what was more troubling was that they handed this over to them just on a disc with no audit no follow-up no um, way of tracking what they did with it afterwards and when I rang them up and I said um, this stuff that you've got is it completely secure is it safe and they said oh yeah it's it's completely pseudonymized. It's nothing, nobody can be re-identified from it. And so I said, right, so, you know, for example, you know, if, if, that, if that entire data set was just leaked onto the internet or you just sort of left the disk behind when you moved offices or something, they said, oh, no, that, that wouldn't be a problem at all because nobody can be re-identified from that. And that is completely untrue. And I sent them away to check. I said, okay, well, you're the press guy. Do you want to check with your scientists? And he said, yeah, I'll go. And they checked with the scientists and they came back and they said, this is all definitely safe. So the entire 
hospital episode statistics data set, which is very, very rich data on everybody in the country, was handed over to this bunch of random people who don't understand what a massive privacy threat it is. And that, to me, is game over, right? That is, that is absolute proof that the NHS Information Centre, now the Health and Social Care Information Centre, are not fit custodians for that data. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, we're trying to get the pharmaceutical industry to share individual patient data on participants of clinical trials, and they are very clearly, because we've got leaked memos on this, paying patient groups to say, oh, we can't share individual patient data from randomised controlled trials that have been done on which treatment works best because this stuff poses a massive privacy risk. And Pharma, the American Pharmaceutical Industry Association, put out this particularly rabid press release about me personally <laughs> and Fiona Godley, the editor of the BMJ, saying that we wanted to post patients' entire medical records on the internet for everyone to see. So it's a really, really weird area in which there's huge power that can come from all of this data. Yeah. And we're, we're managing it in a really cat-handed way. And I think it's... I think I think we're at the, it's a bit like, um, I think it's a bit like nuclear power, right? So this is an, an analogy of Cory Doctorow from Boing Boing that I'm now about to steal. Um, so he says that data is like, um, is like uh, nuclear material. So it turns out you can buy uranium on Amazon um, and it's for like nerdy element connectors. I'm sure that there are people in this room who do this. <laughs> um, and you buy it on the Amazon and you just get a couple of atoms in a, in a pot of water or you get some like unrefined rock that's got some uranium in it. And it's not dangerous at all, right? But when you process it, when you refine it, that's when you produce something that isn't just quantitatively, that is qualitatively entirely different. You produce something that is incredibly dangerous. When it leaks, it can't be unleaked. And data is exactly the same. Like individual nuggets of data are actually, you know, very uninformative. But when you put them all together, when you process them, when you stick them all in one place, when you make them indexed, searchable, processable in the aggregate, then you produce something that is very, very different and which has enormous power, but but also real peril. And I think right now we're kind of at the same. We're, we're at the kind of era of you know the the footage of women in the watch like the glowy watch factories where they're yeah. painting their teeth and going look my teeth are glowing <laughs> lol and then three <laughs> years later they're all dead of face cancer um we're kind of at that stage of just fooling around with data and we're at risk of having our three mile island and our chernobyl and then what will happen is we'll completely lose all public trust and people won't want to let us do all of the really important stuff that we can do with medical data because we'll have scared them off by being so reckless with it um, in the early years. Yeah. So I think that's why, it's really, that's why it's really important, but it's also why it's really exciting. So that's sort of my day job, is working on big electronic health record data sets and finding yeah. better ways of using them. And how do you make them anonymous? So that well, so <laughs> you, you, you can't do it fully. No. So there are lots of strategies that you can use. You can, so w with all information security, like, like security on your house, there's a trade-off between convenience and um, security, right? So you could make your house 
incredibly secure. You could cover the entire thing in an iron case. There'd be planning issues, but you could put it internally and that would shrink your house. And then you could have nine locks on your front door and a massive heavy, like a safe door that was really difficult to open. And it would take you a really, really long time to get in and out of your house, but it would be very, very secure. So you can do the same thing with data. So for example, you can, f um, you can force people to only uh, analyze your data by coming to your secure data center so they can never take any of the individual records away. They can only go and, and get summary statistics um, so that you know X number of people had condition B who also smoked. Um, you can give them remote access to that. You can give people restricted slices of data. You can watermark your data, so at least you can see, and it's unbelievable that HES never did this, but you can watermark it with a few fake records. So then if it ever does leak, at least you know who you're gonna put in jail. Um, and also you can make sure the penalties for leaking data are really high, right? Yeah. So um, if you look at the Information Commissioner's Office, you can see their list of successful prosecutions for people who, um, uh, abuse medical records and infringe patients' privacy, and the penalties are absolutely laughable. So, the, one of the most recent ones is a guy who worked as a practice manager in a GP surgery who was found guilty of over 2,000 counts of illegally accessing patient records in his hometown, mostly girls that he went to school with, in particular one and her child. And the penalty for creeping on these medical records, these electronic medical records, was a fine of 897 quid. And to my mind, if you want to stop people abusing these kinds of data, you need to hang them from the town square, right? <laughs> Seriously, you need to put people in jail for 10, 20 or 30 years. A, a, a penalty that is commensurate with the injury that is inflicted on us. Because I... I, f I fear, and I, and, I, and I don't want to be sort of too doomy, but I, 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 I think it's, there's a distinct possibility that in particular the entire HES data set, the hospital episode statistics data set, could very easily just appear somewhere um, online. Somebody will find a copy and, and stick it up online. And there'll be no way of knowing whose fault it was, and there'll be no going back from that. Like, once it's leaked, it can't be unleaked. It's like radioactive material or it's like turning like diluted cordial back into cordial like you can't there's just it's just it's done the toothpaste is out of the tube and so there are lots of things that you can do but um is this the bit where you ask me if i've ever sort of sucked your cock or my, own. <laughs> my own one i can't remember the details of how it works right. have you ever sucked my cock it's a good question <laughs> You know, I am getting quite old, and uh, it's a lot of people have, so it's hard to... If only there was some kind of record on the internet <laughs> where people could go and check who, who has done it. Um, yeah, I'm going to ask you... Uh, I don't think you should get away without being asked uh, some of the questions. If you had to choose... <laughs> ..between dating a man who was a six-foot-tall penis with a face... He'd be easy to find on this record, so I tell you. Or <laughs> he's terrified of that, those records getting online. Or a man who instead of penis has a tiny man, which could happen. A tiny man those, where his penis is. Yeah, there's just a tiny living man. Autonomous and does that land. man have himself 
a tiny man does, penis. He does. It goes so all the way like around. A, it's like a sort of cock fractal. Yeah. Of and it goes never all the way and then spirals. the man, when you look, you suddenly you realise you're standing on a gigantic man and that man is a penis. <laughs> the original. <laughs> right. And so on. And right. then With it goes sort of all the way around. There's a soundtrack and it's all in neon yeah. and you zoom yeah. in. and Yeah. That's just a by the by. Uh, if you had to choose between dating the man who was the six foot tall penis or the man who had a tiny man as a penis, which of those two would you date? I think it would have to be the giant cock. Well, that's the second in a row. Yeah. Only because I'm sort of um, deeply, deeply physically repulsed by the prospect of having sex with a man. Right. And that doesn't make me homophobic because I'm very happy that other people. No, I don't think so. I think so. so Deeply repulsed. No, I'm deeply (laughs) repulsed by me having sex with them. I think the mistake that um, that 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 homophobes make is in thinking that that is therefore to be logically extended to it is wrong. Like I don't like, I don't like. Japanese food, but I'd be happy for you to eat it in my bed and breakfast, and I would bring you cutlery and plates and everything. Um, you own it. Exactly. So. That's not how sushi's eaten. It's eaten with chopsticks <laughs> off a little wooden thing. So I, I know nothing about your world, but I'm not going to judge you. You know, okay. it's, just, it's just not for me. Okay. So, um, so therefore you would go with a gigantic penis. Yeah, because that would be less like having sex with a man. Also, yeah. the man with no, the fractal penis... talked about having sex with them. It's just going out... Oh, is that just going out the... for a date with them at the moment and they've oh, well, leapt ahead. <laughs> <laughs> a sex would probably be part of it. Okay. Well, in that case, definitely giant cockman because okay. he doesn't have a... Oh, hang on. How does sex work then? Well, you know, you'd have to find a way. He's, he's got a uh, meat, an external meatus on top of his head. Uh, and... Uh, See how he used the proper scientific terms? Cause I... <laughs> a herring's guess... eye, it's also called in popular parlance. Uh, and, uh, you know, hole. you could pleasure him by, you know, reaching around. Give him a, I mean, it's a real reach around for, um, <laughs> for him. So I think still the, the, giant, the giant six-foot cock is definitely a better deal. Yeah. Again, just because I don't, I don't want, like, to be... I don't want to have, like, a sort of that sort of sexy cuddle with a man. Yeah. So this wouldn't be anything like that. This would just be a sort of Uber. massive It'll surreal. It would be like Uber, like having a sex cuddle. With but I'd just be sort of rubbing a massive glands, <laughs> and it wouldn't. Exactly. It's just not. It's just not a. That makes doesn't you, feel. Makes you super gay. That doesn't feel gay to me. It's just not gay. That's not gay. If it was just a little man, you just kind of you'd be sort of just shaking his hand. It's not even a penis. But, but I don't like. I don't object to to, it, to whether it's perceived as gay. Okay. I just. It's just all that matters is whether for me it's, it's all gay, aversive. <laughs> it's just we're just it's the levels of gay. We're gay. Interesting. Uh, so, uh, what celebrity would you like to stroke your hair as you die? You've got nice hair to stroke as well. Oh, I'm at the end of a cycle. Um. Uh. Oh, I don't know. I don't want to think about death. I'm really... No. I've got a real problem with death, actually. I'm really not into it. Um, <laughs> but, to like a, but to a ridiculous extent. Like, yeah. there's, a lot of, there's a lot of discussion to and debate the in the statins. you refuse to ever die? Well, if at all possible. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But there's a lot of discussion in the statins literature about, like, um, what, what's a reasonable benefit that the patient would expect to get from statins mm-hmm. for it to be worth taking a pill every day and risking sort of moderate side effects. And for me, it's like an hour... Like, if I can live for another hour, anything, <laughs> I'd do almost anything to live okay. for another hour. Horribly demented, in pain, having a really terrible time, just 
want You're fearful to, of the yeah. void. Yeah, well, I'm fearful of being left out, you know. That's yeah. But once you are left out, you don't know you're left out anymore. Yeah, but you just know before it happens that it's all going to carry on without you, and that's really, yeah. you know... It's not, you know, it's sad. So then if you have a celebrity to stroke your hair while you're contemplating well, that, 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 true. that makes it slightly nicer. I think maybe... Um, maybe... Uh, Timothy Claypole from Rent a Ghost. <laughs> <laughs> There'd be yeah. something quite sort of warm and comfortable. And I think he was the first. Interesting, you've I, um, chosen possibly the gayest <laughs> character on ever known in any form of entertainment. <laughs> but we're not going to have like magical bumming time. We're just going to. Just, just interesting. That's all I'm saying. It's no, interesting. You spent your life dating a gigantic penis, and then as your life comes to an end, you immediately think, "Well, Timothy Claypole, obviously." I think I just—he was the first person that I thought was really oh. cool. <laughs> I liked him too. I like Fred Mumford, though. It We're really like Fred Mumford. We're trying to get to the pointless uh, 1970s TV references, and it's what Timothy Claypole they remember, not Fred Mumford so much. Fred Mumford was... I like Fred Mumford. I think you're slightly older than me, actually. This he was is, in the same series of... Oh, was he? He was, he was the, was man, he he was the normal man in rent He was the man who died in rent I don't become, remember any normal people uh, in rent And then he wasn't... I don't think he was in later series of rent I may be wrong about this. Um... There was a lot. That he was he was very good, and him and Mr. Bennett from Take Heart were uh, two of my favourite comedic characters. People remember him, right? See, a few people remember him, but Fred Mumford, sadly, it took a long time about Fred Mumford. <laughs> Might just do that. Might just talk as long about that as you did about all that sh- science shit. He was <laughs> just you to give just to give balance to get the numbers up. <laughs> <laughs> <We've> <laughs> There's a lot of empty seats since Sue Perkins finished. No, the, 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 honestly, that, Ian had this weird aura around him. <laughs> Did you buy all those seats just so you could sit there like a weird king? Weird Tesco king? Sorry, sorry, Ian. I, li- I really like you, Ian. I'm, not, I'm really sorry to keep picking on you. I, re- I like you more than anyone who's ever been in the audience before. So... Um, um, all right, we'll ask you a couple more. I don't know how long this has gone on for. You know, I fantasise because I listen to this when I'm falling asleep. Yeah. Which is not a bad review. It's just yeah. A sort of I hate <laughs> sleeping, so I just need to outsource the tr- stream of yeah. consciousness, and then you can let go. But um, I a little bit of me wondered if the people that you routinely abuse really existed, yeah. or if this was just if you sort of did this in your flat, and <laughs> you had a tape recording. Of I'm people still wondering between. whether I don't know. That is a weird thing, actually. I, so I did. It could be that we did that. Um, we did that sh- tour with um, like Robin Ince and Simon Singh and Brian Cox and then lots of random sort of comedians. And and it was so. I'm not like a. I'm not a performer, right? But I do. We've ascertained talk. that <laughs> clearly. <laughs> but I do talks, and actually, it's much easier. It's much. No, but it's relaxing because. <laughs> I was joking, Ben. It's been very, it's been, no, no, it's you know, fine. it's been unusually interesting. That's it. No, you're right. Unusually it's informative and interesting and entertaining. It's not my media. I know. It's but, um, I was joking. But it's sort of, it's, it's nice doing what, what me and my sort of fellow 
sort of sciencey nerd talk people do yeah. because if you're funny it's like a bonus yeah. and that's nice and you and you sort of you 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 start to think that you slightly learned what determines whether people laugh or not although it's just basically still fundamentally unpredictable but um we did this tour and this is like your life i suppose but it was 12 nights in a row and it was all these sort of theaters between about 1200 and 3000 seaters and one night after another and it gets to the point where you can't remember what town you're in yeah. and you can't see the room. And some of them, the acoustics are all obviously really cleverly designed so that your voice is projected out there. But it means that the laughter is hollow <laughs> and mocking. <laughs> and you've said the same thing in the same order every night for 10 nights in a row. And you feel quite lonely there. <laughs> yeah. And you suddenly start to feel like that Robert De Niro character in that movie. Yeah, where king of comedy. Yeah, yeah. Where And actually, maybe you're just in the toilet bashing your face against the mirror. You never know, do you? Maybe or we're already on our deathbeds and this is just us remembering a version of our lives that we thought was what happened, but we can't quite remember. No, no, stop. You're really doing my head in, man. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's what's happening. It's terrifying. Uh, it's worse when you kind of semi-know where you are but are too scared to say it just in case you're wrong. <laughs> when, I was, when I was in Lancaster, I said hello Lancaster at the beginning and then throughout the first half I was thinking, I was wanting to say Lancaster again then I thought, that's not a place though, Lancaster. <laughs> Lancaster, I really... So Lancaster. I didn't say it again, I didn't say it again cause for fear that I'd just made up. But also, so, but the other thing that, that <laughs> no, I, the, the thing that I didn't realise was sort of chatting to lots of comedians was the extent to which they have these obsessive sort of nerdy ruminations on what makes different rooms l laugh. Yeah. And a lot of it's sort of physics and sort of head density. <laughs> so, like, I remember... I can't remember if it was... I'm not going to say any names because I just don't want to be that kind of terrible human being. But... um Somebody was saying, oh, oh, yeah, well, Cardiff, like, no one's laughed in that room in Cardiff since they put the disabled access lanes in because the spaces between people are just too broad. And then they changed the baffles on the ceiling <laughs> and you can't get any momentum going with the, with the laughter. And then you start thinking about that when you go into <laughs> rooms. And that kind of, that sort of physical mechanics of, of comedy is really, is really strange and really disturbing. And there's obviously like a... There's a book in it. Yeah. Are you trying to just fuck me up for the rest of my tour? Is that <laughs> just think, Rich, when you're next playing Cardiff. <laughs> I, can, well, I reckon, like the government statistics, I can work out what comedian that is from the type of room he is playing and his, con <laughs> and his mild uh, disability phobia. Uh, so I, I, I reckon I can work out how it is. Um, so um, let me just check. Answer this question without going on for ages. Should I wear a cycle helmet or not? Yes or no? It probably doesn't make any real difference. Okay. <laughs> what I should do is like a pamphlet yeah. version <laughs> of that book. It's really difficult because people often think that it's like that. It's just a, a sort of a, a canon of facts. Yeah. When in fact it's sort of about the method. I mean, I know you know, but it's about like it's about how do you know, not yeah. what the answer is. But and that that's something that people get, I think, in England, maybe just because I've been around a bit, but. When I do, like, you do those really weird, lonely things that, you, I don't know if you've done them in America, where you have um, an entire day of back-to-back seven-minute interviews with local radio stations, and then a three-minute gap, and then a seven-minute thing, and then a three-minute gap. And that really is like Groundhog Day. Like, you yeah. think you're going mad. And over and over again, it's just people thinking that they can just throw 
medical interventions <laughs> or scare stories at you and you will just go, yep, no, <laughs> maybe, yep, no, definitely. That would be useful. No. Yeah, no. Well, the psychohelmet one's interesting, but a different the, one. Well, from the one I provide. But it's yeah. it's it's an interesting thing because like the thing that fucks you up in the, in that article in the in the article in there is that people give people not wearing cycle helmets more room when they go past them. Maybe, so you you yeah. might be safer because you're not wearing a cycle helmet because the drivers aren't thinking thinking oh if I hit him he'll be killed. So I better steer around him, which I think is probably true. So yeah, so maybe. So th- I think the thing that's really interesting about cycle helmets, and yeah. the reason why we did that article, um, which was me and David Spiegel, he's professor of public understanding of risk at Cambridge, was that the cycle helmet debate exemplifies every sing- almost every single possible quirk of how epidemiology works and how things can go wrong and second round yeah. problems. So like you... You, you wear a helmet and maybe it does make you safer, but then it changes driver's behaviour. Maybe you be yourself engage in risk compensation behaviour. So you wear a helmet and then you go, well, fuck it, I can cycle however I want. I go home <laughs> pissed on my bike. Or also then, you know, what happens with, um, you know, maybe the people who wear helmets are themselves safer cyclists in general. Maybe it goes the other way. So that's why it looks like people who wear helmets are less likely to have accidents because it's just squares who wear helmets. And then you also have things like, well, what, you know, in countries where they make helmet wearing um, compulsory, then are people actually wearing their helmets properly or have they just got them on their head without a clip done up to avoid a fine? Do they cycle less because they don't want to mess their hair up or more likely because being forced to wear a helmet makes them more aware of the risk and so there's less cycling and if there's less cycling, we, we know pretty much for definite that the tiny risk of being hit by a car is massively outweighed by the longevity benefit of having exercise embedded in your routine daily activity and you asked for a short answer to yeah. that question. So. <laughs> I'll just, just make sure you hit by a car at the end of your life. Exactly. Then yeah. uh, a deferral you probably scheme. will be, so don't wear a helmet. Just try and live a long time and then get hit by a car. Yeah. That's the best. That's the best thing you can do. That's so my should advice. I wear a helmet or not? So again, it just sort of, I think... Just... Because <laughs> I've got one. I don't really go cycling anymore. So My tyres are flat. So... Just to, to return to, yeah. the, to the extremely fatuous title of the book... <laughs> uh, it's like it's all, it, it's a really vicious thing to say to some people because I think people's um, the template for what a, a sort of public doctor should be is that you're giving readers health advice. But actually, I don't care. Like I don't, and I mean that in a like not almost in a kind of like it's almost a sort of deliberately neutral stance. But also, actually, I really don't care if you wear a helmet. Like I think I think the data on helmets is really interesting, but I don't care if you wear one. And I don't really care what the answer is. I just care that it's really difficult and interesting to unpick whether they were. And similarly, I don't care. Like, a lot of people try and it sort of have tried to involve me over the years in things to sort of ban homeopathy. And actually, I don't care. Like, I actually take a kind of sadistic pleasure in the fact that people spunk their money down the drain <laughs> on buying silly magical sugar pills. Like, I, I sort of think it's, it's really interesting because it tells us something really interesting about the role of science and medicine in culture. Um, and how it's about much more than facts and evidence and statistics. But actually, I don't care if people want to spend their money on it. Like, I really, I really don't care. <laughs> so, But I, what I found interesting about bad science was I read that, and I'm very sneery about homeopathy, obviously, but then there was a thing about Barocca, which I have every day, and just go, that's pointless. I mean, it's, just, it's exactly the same thing as homeopathy. I feel like I'm being healthy by having a fizzy... If it didn't fizz up, I wouldn't think it was that <laughs> healthy... <laughs> 
<laughs> also, it's <laughs> and nice. And actually, but I think the presence of ritual in your life is actually a really important thing. And, and, and like pampering yourself. And like I said in Bad Science, you know, the, um, there's something really uh, sort of facetious and patronising, I think, about the idea that, for example, women only buy really expensive cosmetics because they're taken in by the stupid adverts with the molecules wearing little white coats and they fly into your skin and the <laughs> hydrogenase B complex sucks your skin wrinkles together and your husband loves you again. Um, <laughs> like, that, that, that's, that's not the reason why most people buy cosmetics, actually. Like, it's decorative bullshit and it's fun and interesting to pull it apart and to mock it. But... Um, but actually, the reasons why people buy cosmetics are a lot more to do with a display of wealth or a display to yourself that you justify, that you, that you deserve pampering or as part of a kind of broader package of things that you do to be kind to yourself. And actually, you know, maybe it's not just about um, the evidence and the statistics. It's about all of that bigger stuff. And ritual is great, you know, and, if, and hangover rituals, which everybody has... They're really good because they're just they're just like they're just a flow chart that at least gets you out of bed and mobile. And once you're moving and ideally out of the house, then things can start to fit back into place again. You know. And have you ever tried to suck your own cock? <laughs> or if you give that answer, will be that the last piece of the jigsaw that means your enemies? <laughs> yes, this bloke was one was hospitalised with the, <laughs> the broke. I've got a friend who can. Yeah. And he doesn't give it very good reviews. Right. <laughs> so he specifically says that the, that sort of sense of like, oh, not again, sort of disappointment when you've masturbated sometimes. Uh, combined with the fact that you have a mouthful of your own yeah. sperm. Um, but then also, if you think about the anatomy of it, mm. It's not going to be like a sort of cosy expression of uh, affection on a sofa. It's it's the sort of it's a fight basically, <laughs> and and the the best you can do. I mean, he did quite well. Yeah. But the best almost anyone really can do yeah. is you, you're just sort of scraping your front teeth <laughs> against the frenulum. Yeah. Or the banjo string, as yeah. it is known in the medical that's right. anatomy textbooks, and that's not great. Uh, so, but as a scientist, wouldn't it excite you that the frenulum of your tongue might touching the frenulum of your penis? That would be quite mm, an amazing thing. To, I think the universe might be destroyed if that happens. Struggle. There's one there. That's one. I'm not going to show you the other one. I do but in the extra video, yeah. <laughs> Backstage, we did we did do this. Um, Bit of so, it, are you your friend in that anecdote? Or that's, that's, that's the <laughs> only thing I'm not, not entirely clear about. Uh, I think it feels like uh, we've been here for quite a while. So, uh, I think, uh, uh, well, are you having fun, are you? Fuck you. This isn't, this isn't for you. Oh, you know it is. Uh, we can talk some more if you like. Have you got anything else to say? I think. Uh, I'm feeling you have. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you're lying in bed listening to this, I think you'll be asleep by now. <laughs> so, uh, 
<laughs> that may be time uh, to draw it all to a close. But thank you very much. Do buy Ben Go Do- Gen- Ben Goldacre's book. I think you'll find it's a bit more complicated than that. Uh, and you have to say it like that when you buy it. Thank you very much, Ben Goldacre. You have been listening to Richard Herring's at the Square Theatre Podcast with me, Richard Herring, and my guest, Ben Goldacre. The music you're listening to is by Pest. Uh, thanks to Orange Mark and everyone at the British Comedy Guide for hosting this podcast. Thank you to Chris Evans, not that one, and everyone at Go Faster Stripe for looking after the video elements of this podcast. Thank you to everyone at the Leicester Square Theatre for letting us do our podcast in their theatre. I think we paid them some money and stuff and they get money on the bar. So, you know, it's not just altruism, but they are very nice. Uh, it is produced by Dave Gribb. It's a Sky Potato Fuzz and Go Faster Strike production. That's my phone going off. Oh, yeah, pretty popular. See you later, babe. <laughs> it was message failed to send. <laughs> Uh, thanks for watching slash listening. Uh, that might even be the end of the series, as far as you're concerned. Uh, we, we're doing uh, two more shows uh, next week that are for the This Morning with Richard Not Judy DVD. One of them might get put out. We might put out a little bit of the other one, but uh, we'll see. So I uh, hope you've enjoyed the series. Do keep checking back to see what we put up here, and there will be more. Raha Lustapurs. Raha Lustapurs. In May. I think we're doing May to July or something like that. So uh, otherwise, that's it. I hope you enjoy the show. I can't remember if this is before or after the thing now. Is this one for after? Okay. Yes, it is after. This one was after. So hope you enjoyed listening and watching that. But I've got a bit of a cold. I'm going to be rubbish. All right, bye.